Tonight, we're going to talk about Jesus's politics. When I was a young Christian, I was in my 20s, I was a die-hard Democrat. If you're from the South, you were a Democrat. It was just democratic populism. That was the thing. I remember being so proud when Jimmy Carter ran for president. I was in college. A lot of things happened while I was in college in the 70s. Uh, Roe v. Wade was passed by the Supreme Court and became the law of the land. And I remember there were a lot of debates, even among students in a conservative Christian college like I was a part of, that um, we, there were some of us like myself who felt like it was evil and it was wrong, and then there were others that were for it. And at that time, you know, I was still growing in my understanding of politics and what it was. And, and if I look back on regret with my college education, there was not one single political science class that was offered in my major or in the degree that I was working upon. So I began to read about politics from different people. And then in my mid-20s, a man came along into my life who was one of our senators took me under his wing and began to mentor me, and we talked. And I will never forget one day, he asked me why I was a Democrat. And I said, well, it was simple. My daddy was a Democrat. My grandpa was a Democrat. And um, besides, I like Jimmy Carter. And we, we had this conversation, and he said, well, let's lay the two platforms down beside each other. So we laid the two platforms down beside each other, and, and it was stunning to me how things had changed. I took them home and showed it to my father, showed it to my, some, two of my uncles, and they were not even aware that this was the platform at the time. A lot has happened since then. A lot has happened since then. The lines are not as clearly drawn as they used to be. The discourse is not nearly as civil. Occasionally, I will read an article or I would read a, a book that's entitled, How Would Jesus Vote? What Was Jesus' Politics? And depending upon the persuasion of the person that was writing the book, they would always come along to making Jesus vote or have politics that was similar to theirs. There came a time when I just, I became an independent because of all that I saw that was going on. I'm not saying that was a virtuous decision. It was just a decision that I had to make in order to keep some sort of sanity about my politics. And when I was recently studying for this passage that we're going to be preaching on tonight and looking in the book of Mark, I realized just how powerful this was and wish that somebody had taught me this much earlier and I wish that my friend who was a senator is still alive so he and I could have this conversation today but I can imagine that he would agree with what I'm saying here because he was a godly man he loved the Lord matter of fact he would come and be a part of uh, prayer services that was part of. He, he helped us with outreaches to our high schools, outreaches to Vietnam veterans, outreaches to the hungry. He was a man who really practiced his faith. And I'm so glad for his thumbprint politically upon my life and what he taught me in life. So that's the question we want to look at this tonight. What are the politics of Jesus? Now, you might say, well, Pastor, you're skipping over the parable of the vineyard, the story that Jesus told and how that they killed the son and the heir. Well, I think we've already discussed most of that in the, in the previous chapter when we looked at Jesus cleansing the temple 
And basically, he continues that conversation, and he says to them, you've killed the prophets, and you're going to eventually execute the son as well. And they knew that he was talking about them. So that story that he's telling just reflects on everything that Jesus has talked about so far. So I wanted to move right ahead into this message on the politics of Jesus. A couple of things to understand as we read the text. The Pharisees and the Herodians are at opposite end of the spectrums. They're the Democrats and the Republicans of our time. I probably should have went on my left. The Democrats and the Republicans of their time. So the, the Herodians supported the Roman government. They wanted the Roman government's rule. They liked the power, the prestige it gave them. The Pharisees were just the opposite. They wanted the Romans kicked out of there. So you're looking at two groups of people at the opposite end of the spectrum. Now, just like in our day, in Jesus' day, it was difficult to have a conversation without politics coming up. And I'm sure in your family holiday celebrations, I'm sure that maybe sometimes over Sunday dinner or if you're going out to lunch with people, if, you're, if your life is anything like my life, politics is constantly coming up. People ask me, say, what do you think Jesus would think of this? Or what do you think about this? And it's political. And some people are just so aggressive with how they want to make their case that there is no disagreement with them or you break off the relationship. So Jesus' answer is incredible. Now look at me because this is important. This passage is so familiar that I think we run the risk of not really understanding of what Jesus was getting at. You know, sometimes I will notice things because that's not been there before. And so it stands out to me. But something that's been there all the time, say like this sofa right here or table, I'm not going to notice it because it's been there all the time. And when we see a verse of Scripture, if we're not careful and we're not daily asking God to open our eyes, then we won't see everything the way we should see it. So I'm asking the Holy Spirit to open your heart and open my heart and help us to see this with a brand new set of lenses tonight. Can you say amen to that? Let's just let's look right at this. Later, the leaders sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. So you see, already you've got the Herodians and you've got the Pharisees. Their, their goal is to trap Jesus. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You are impartial and you don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now, you know they don't believe that. We've been looking at this all the way through the book of Mark. They don't believe a word that they're saying, but they're buttering Jesus up right here, okay? Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? I mean, this is very demanding in the Greek. They ask a question and then it's like saying, answer me right now. And occasionally people will say, I need an answer right now. So I can't give you an answer right now. Let me think about this. Let me pray about this. So that's what they're saying. Answer me right now. Well, Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and said, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin and I'll tell you. And when they handed it to him, it was a denarius. It was worth about a quarter. How much is a quarter going to get you today? How much will a quarter get you at the gas station? How much will a quarter get you in the grocery? It's not worth very much. So the denarius was, this, was a very small coin. It was a little more valuable than the widow's might, but it's not worth about a quarter in our economy. 
Caesar's, they replied. Well, then Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. His reply completely amazed them. They were flabbergasted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message tonight from your word to us, especially as we are entering, Lord, in this political season and things are heating up like never before. God, we need wisdom, but tonight, Lord, we don't come looking for a message about politics. It's just come in the natural flow as we've been studying the book of Mark, and that is what's so wonderful about your word. If we'll stay consistent in studying it, you will answer the great questions of life for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Well, when I read this passage, I understand how important it is for me to know the difference between flattery and compliments. I understand how important that is. I understand how important it is not to believe all the nice things that people say about me. And you shouldn't believe all the nice things that people say about you either. Hank Ketchum, the creator of Dennis the Menace, said that flattery is like gum. Enjoy it, but don't swallow it, okay? Remember Lucy and Peanuts, <clears throat> one of the cartoon strips there? She, they've come back from summer vacation, and, and the very first assignment in class is that you're supposed to write an essay on why you're glad to be back in school. And Lucy writes this flowery statement of how she longs to learn because learning is the key to growth and learning enhances all of life and helps you become a, a, a mature human being. And the teacher is just complimenting Lucy on her statement that she made. And Lucy leans over to Charlie Brown and says, after a while, you'll learn what sells. So you got to learn to discern the difference between flattery and compliments. The Bible says in Romans 16 and verse 18, talking about some of the false teachers and prophets in the New Testament, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. And none of you are here, and I'm not being flattering, you're naive people. This is why you're here on Wednesday nights, to, to study the Word, to grow in wisdom, to grow in knowledge, and to grow in discernment. One of my favorite books, and I just mentioned this the other day, I love the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings. And I, I love what the men of Eomer, if you remember Eomer from um, the, uh, the Two Towers, he, he says to Aragon, he says, I know you speak the truth, that is plain. The men of the mark, that is the men of Rohan, do not lie, and therefore they are not easily deceived. The men of Rohan do not lie, and therefore they're not easily deceived. I was on Orange Street in Macon, Georgia, a number of years ago, about the same time that I was learning and being schooled in politics. And so I ask a question, how do, you, how do you discern the difference? How do you know the difference between flattery and false promises? Because even then, you know, in the, in the, in the 80s, there was this, this big push in politics, and suddenly the church was getting involved. Pat Robertson was running for president. CBN was in most of our homes at that time. And so we were, got very caught up in this. And I'll never forget, my mentor said to me, the only people that can be deceived by flattery are dishonest, vain, prideful people. People who are honest with themselves and honest with God, they will see through flattery and they'll see through a lie. And so it's important, and I think that's part of what 
Tolkien was getting at when he wrote that statement about the men of Eomer. It's the mark of a healthy person. Now listen, it's the mark of a healthy person who can both give and receive compliments and affection. Let's look at two verses here. In Proverbs 29 and verse 5, those who flatter their neighbors are spreading neat nets for their feet. In other words, they're trying to trap them. But isn't there room to give an honest compliment? Isn't there room to give a, an, an, an honest encouragement or give an honest word of praise to one another? Of course there is. Some people are afraid to compliment because they're afraid of how it's going to be received. Some people are afraid to compliment because it, it just kind of feels awkward to them. But study after study has shown that the person who was complimented feels better about themselves, and the person who gives the compliment feels better about themselves as well. Do unto others, Jesus said, as you would like them to do to you. So how do you, how do you compliment without flattering? One of the things I would say to you is always compliment people on something they do, something they are. If you're a beautiful, beautiful woman, God made you that way. And, you know, you just, it, that's not what you did. That's how God made you. If you're a handsome, muscular man, God made you that way. And you can't really, you know, take credit for that. I remember years ago when I was trying to gain some weight and some muscle mass and and, and my trainer at the gym just finally told me one day, he says, listen, Pastor, you need, this is down in Georgia, he says, you just need to quit worrying about that. God didn't create you genetically that way. God didn't make you that way. You just need to stay in shape. And, and that was so freeing to me because I thought I needed to be, you know, muscular and, and strong like others. But be who you are. Let the compliments come because of what you do. You're honest, you're truthful, you're loving, you're kind, you're helpful. Those are the, and it doesn't hurt to tell somebody they look nice tonight. Carrie, you look nice. You're wearing Georgia Bulldog colors tonight, black sweater and a red jacket. Come on, Victory. I like that a lot. Secondly, I would say, understand what's behind the question. Understand what's behind the question. That means we've got to daily discern in the news, in the questions that people ask us in life. Now, let me tell you about discernment. Discernment, there's a spiritual gift of discerning of spirits. That's not what I'm talking about here. Discernment is solely dependent upon the grace of God. If you're a discerning person, it's because you stay on your face before the Lord. You seek Him in prayer every day. You're reading His Word so you understand what the will of God is, what the kingdom of God is like. The song we used to, or song we still sing a lot of times here is that His faithfulness and His grace, they're new to us every single morning. But if you want to be a discerning person, and I'm looking at Keith's Bible over here open and all marked up, if you want to be a discerning person, Stay in the Word daily. Study the Word daily. You don't have to spend hours in it, but a few minutes of the time that you have, study God's Word consistently and daily. It's just like reading the book of Mark. We come to a very political statement here tonight that tells us a lot about Jesus' politics. Let me tell you why it's so important. Look at me. Don't miss this. Let me tell you why it's so important for me to study daily. It's not to be a preacher. It's not to be a preacher. 
Because if I'm not careful, I can confuse what my heart wants with the will of God. If I'm not careful, then I, I can become someone that gets muddled and then suddenly darkened in my thinking by an agenda that's either my own or someone else that has flattered me or told me something that I don't need to hear. And so studying God's Word daily, it's like that two-edged sword you've heard in the New Testament. It cuts away that that is unhealthy and unholy, and it brings healing just like a surgeon's scalpel would do. Look again at the question, Mark chapter 12, verse 14. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You are impartial. You don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? Friends, it's a trap. It's a trap. The tax wasn't an expensive tax. It was the denarius. How much is the denarius worth? A quarter. It is a tax that is despised because the tax was placed upon you by Caesar for the privilege of being subject to Caesar. That's what the tax was all about. It was all about your privilege to be a subject of Caesar. There was a man called Judas the Galilean. 25 years before Jesus cleansed the temple, Judas the Galilean, he called upon the people of Israel to not pay the head tax anymore. As a matter of fact, if you read in, in like the New American Standard, they translate it the poll tax, but translations just say taxes. It's not like your income tax. It's a very distinct, it's a, it's a head tax that says you are a subject of, of, of Rome, of Caesar. And so he came in, now listen, he cleansed the temple. He drove out the money changers. He said that we are going to be subject to God only. And they were going to bring in the kingdom of God right then. The Roman authorities hunted him down and executed him with the help of the Herodians. Now you hear that same thing sometimes from Christian nationalists. You hear that same thing today from, from people who want to co-opt what the Bible has to say about the kingdom and want to establish and set up the kingdom of God. Judas is executed not long after all of this happened, so about 25 years before, Judas is executed. Now, this is important because we've looked at throughout this book of Mark, and I don't know how many weeks we've been in this now, but Jesus has built his entire ministry around the kingdom of God. And if you go to the book of Matthew, Matthew really brings out the kingdom of God teaching of Jesus, especially in the Beatitudes. If he says no, he will be unpopular with the Herodians. If he says yes, he'll be unpopular with the Pharisees and their people, and they will know that Jesus just simply is, 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 is blowing smoke at them, basically. He's just being a hypocrite. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Again, we're talking about discernment. Our purpose is to please God, not people, he alone examines the motives of my heart. God knows why I'm preaching this message tonight. God knows why you're here tonight. God knows and searches our hearts out. If he says no, there's going to be an armed revolt. Don't pay the tax. Rome is going to come in. They're going to try to do to him exactly what they did, exactly what they did to Judas the Galilean. If he says yes, the people will say that he's a hypocrite. Notice what Jesus said about the kingdom in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 through 19. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, and that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. The kingdom of God is more than inner peace. The kingdom of God is more than inner joy. Politicians, many times you will hear them say today, well, you know, my Christianity is just a matter of my heart. It's what's in me. I don't wear it on my sleeve. That was not how the early church world, that was not how Israel looked at faith and spirituality. That didn't come along till later with Locke and and Kant when they began to teach that religion and spirituality is for your private life and it had nothing to do with your public life. That is showing up more and more in our society and our culture today. But it's not what the prophets taught. The prophets taught exactly what Jesus was saying here. Jesus was going to deal with injustice. Jesus was going to deal with poverty. Jesus was going to deal with hunger. And Jesus was going to deal with suffering. That's exactly what he's saying here. And the prophet said the Messiah would deal with those four things. So what I want you to see is the wisdom of the answer that Jesus gave. Because just like you and just like me, the Herodians and the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to come down on their side. You don't do that to me often. The teenagers are constantly doing that. They'll come up to me with a question and there'll be a group of them here. They want me to side here and another group that want me to side there. And I love it. It's fun. And I always look for a way to thread that needle and to, and to come, come to a, help them to see a scriptural truth. And it's, sometimes it's not an either or, you know. It's not like the Big Ten that we're looking at on Sunday mornings. So look again at what they said to them. And Should we pay them or shouldn't we? And Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and said, why are you trying to trap me? Now notice this. Show me a Roman coin and I'll tell you. And when they handed it to him, he said, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well, then Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. His reply completely amazed them. When I'm trying to thread that needle with the young people sometimes, when they come to me with a question, I'm trying to help them see it's both and. Sometimes they're both right, but they can't see where they're both right. So it's a, it's a both and. And so when he says, hand me the denarius, he does something very interesting. His politics are very nuanced. When I was in my 20s, I wasn't very nuanced. I wasn't really able sometimes to just clearly, you know, distinguish between those fine things. Matter of fact, I look back now and I don't apologize for anything I preached, but I sometimes think, wow, I was more like a bull in a china shop than really learning how to navigate issues with people. Let me illustrate. If you think today that the environment, and and I'm just taking two real current issues. If you think climate and environment are the most important issue of our time, then you probably want a candidate like Ralph Nader. Remember Ralph Nader? You know, very concerned about ecology, very concerned about our climate, and, and 
you know, he has a magazine that he's able to publish and he's still, uh, the, his, his quotes are still available because he really cared about that. And you read a magazine that behind all of it has the climate and has ecology behind it. That's called Consumer's Report. Now, if you happen to be like some of my African-American pastor friends, you think racial injustice is the most important issue that's facing America today. And I hear them tell me, how in the world can climate or the environment be more important than racial injustice? How can that be more important of a clean river or, or a national park? How can that be more important? If you talk to somebody else, they may tell you the most important issue facing America today is, 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 is the abortion issue. And so Jesus is very nuanced in how he begins to answer the question because what he's saying to them is you're mixing God and Caesar together in a salad bowl. And you're neither coming up with a Caesar salad nor are you coming up with a heavenly salad. You're mixing them and the two don't mix. Oil and water don't mix, right? The two don't mix together at all. So he says, it's not that simple. Give me a denarius. Give me a coin. So they flip him a quarter. And I wish I had a quarter in my pocket to flip to somebody tonight. They flip him a quarter. And the word is icon. I talked about this on a Sunday morning message when we talked about the, the second commandment. The third commandment, I mean. We talked about that. And he says, whose icon, whose image do you see on this? And they said to him, we see Caesar's image. And he says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. It's the first time in the New Testament and in the Bible you find limited government taught. It's the first time in the Bible you find what is a principle of the founding of the United States of America and that's limited government. Do we not hear limited government a lot in our conversations with people? I have friends who think the government needs to be bigger and more expansive. I have friends who think government needs to be smaller and less expansive. So remember, Jesus is being very nuanced here. He's trying to show them you're mixing the two together. I cannot give Caesar what he wants. Caesar wants my ultimate allegiance. Caesar wants me to be subject to him and to accept his power, his corruption, his exclusion of people, his inclusion of his favorite peoples. Caesar wants to be worshipped as a god. I can't give that to government. But what Caesar owns is really very little. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Caesar in the United States, for instance, and we'll just use that. I could use other countries and give you other examples. Caesar in the United States is a government of the people and by the people. What's he saying? The people vote. We get the government that the people decide to have. So the people can either give more power to Caesar or less power to Caesar. The people can decide that taxes are too high or taxes are too low. I have friends who think we need to increase taxes. I have friends that think we need to decrease taxes. And yet when I talk to my friends who think we ought to increase taxes, I ask them, 
well, do you just go ahead and give the government the extra that you think? And not a one of us told me they ever did that. I just recently had an email dialogue with someone, with a friend, someone I love very much and thinks that, that taxes are too low and we need to increase them. And so when I asked that question, he said, that's a silly question. Of course, I'm going to pay as little as I can pay. I think it's kind of hypocritical, don't you? <laughs> well, I shouldn't have said that. Caesar wants coercion. Caesar wants injustice. Caesar wants ultimate allegiance. God owns everything. God owns everything. Government, look at me. Governments come and go. Caesars come and go. And one day, this great nation of ours that we love, if Jesus tarries, it will exist no more. Just like the Roman Empire, the British Empire, just like the, you know, the, 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 the Ming dynasties, all of these empires, they come and go. Never forget that. Don't be deceived by the temples and the buildings and the Corinthian columns that are put upon government buildings, they come and they go. I'm not advocating that the government needs to go, but I'm just telling keep your eyes upon Jesus. Because Jesus not only owns this planet, he owns the universe. He's the Lord of the heaven of heavens. One day even this earth and the heavens that surround it will disappear and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And so what Jesus is saying here is the temple will be cleansed. Now we're going back to the temple again, but not the way you envision. Listen to me. Don't miss this. Jesus is a king without a quarter. Jesus is a king without a quarter. Give me a coin. <laughs> he doesn't have a quarter. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Get it? And yet he owns everything. He's consistent, and I'm running out of time here, so let me just, I really want to bring this to a close now. He's consistent not only with what he teaches, but how he lives. He's consistent not only with what he teaches, he feeds the hungry, he frees the captive. He sets at liberty them that are bruised. He forgives the sinner. He heals the leper. He stands against the injustice that's taking place by the religious people and by the Romans. No wonder these people in power hated him so much. As Shimon, Press, Shimon Perez's press secretary told me at the Western Wall when he and I were sitting and having a conversation, no wonder the common people loved Jesus. He healed them. He fed them. He, he, he taught them, he says, and others, the people in power hated him. So it's important to see Jesus is consistent, and the reason he's consistent is because he's God-centered. He's God-centered. He says, I only do the things I see my father doing. I only say the things my father is saying. So what I want you to see is Jesus really does demonstrate the dividing line between the two kingdoms. Augustine called it, the city of man and the city of God. He demonstrates there is a dividing line. We're in this world, but we're not of this world. We occupy in this world till he comes. Let's look at this next passage tonight, if you would. God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. God blesses you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. God blesses you who weep now, for in due time you, laugh, you will laugh. 
what blessings await you when people hate you, exclude you, and mock you, and curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man. When that happens, be happy. Leap for joy, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember their ancestors treated the ancient prophets the same way. Now, notice, I want you to see what he's going to do. Very next sentence, very next sentence. He's going to flip everything he's just said from blessing to woe. Everything he's just said, blessing to woe. And if you're not careful, you miss this. What sorrow awaits you who are rich, for you only have happiness now. What sorrow awaits you who are fat and prosperous now, for a time of awful hunger awaits you. What sorrow awaits you who laugh now, for your laughing will turn to mourning and sorrow. What sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds, for their ancestors also praised the false prophets. What is he doing? He's showing the four things the world wants. Power. The world is wanting power. Have we lost the notes there? The world is wanting power. The world wants success. The world wants comfort. And the world wants recognition. So let's look at those four things just, just real briefly here. Power. It's what everybody wants. There are books on how to get power, how to keep power, the 21 laws of power. Books about success. Matter of fact, there was a a club that was out called the Success and Wealth Club, and this teacher was using scriptures out of context to show you how you could be successful and wealthy, and it was really channeling all of your wealth towards him. Somebody was getting successful and wealthy, and it was him. All about comfort, all about ease in this life, and all about recognition. Will you all recognize these are the things that wealth and power buy. These are the things that compromise with the world will get you. If you're in the kingdom of the world, these four things are what you live for. Look at me just a second. If you are living in this world and for this world, these are the four things that you're looking for in life. You think about them. You dream about them. You dwell upon them. You work to achieve and to have them. Your life's daily decisions are based upon these four, four things. Will it bring me more power? Will it give me more success? Will I be more comfortable? And will I achieve fame or recognition in life? These four things are what the world lives for. Jesus is just simply saying, the success of my kingdom, the climax of my ministry here on this earth is not when I get elected it's when I get executed on the cross of Calvary. That's what he's saying. Remember when he said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it will not bring fruit. If the devil had understood Calvary, I think he'd have done everything to try and keep Jesus from getting there. I think if the Romans had understood Calvary, I think if the Herodians and the Pharisees had understood Calvary, because... and. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but when we get towards the end of this book, you're going to see how power and success and recognition and the joys or the comforts that await us, God is a good God. Can you say amen to that? So let me just give you this. Good government promotes justice for all, for the Asian, for the Native American, for the African-American, for the Hispanic-American, for white people, it promotes justice for all. 
Good government promotes order and peace. Because without order, there is no liberty. Anarchy never produces order, or never produces peace, and never produces liberty. So what do we do with this tonight? How can I advocate in my community? How can I advocate here? Don't so much think about Lansing. Don't so much think about Washington, D.C. If we can make a difference at a grassroots level, we can make a difference eventually all the way up. That was one thing I learned from Pat Robertson in a meeting with him at the Macon Hilton Hotel when Pat Robertson talked about the power of the grassroots and, and how that making a difference in your local community where it was all started. Evangelism is God's primary way of dealing with the problems of society. Because when a man or a woman comes to know Christ or a young person comes to know Christ, suddenly their heart changes. Nathan Hale, the former narcotics director of, for Miami-Dade County, said that the only people he knew that had a successful cure for drug addiction were Jesus people. Evangelism is how people are cured. Number two, keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is not all the good things that I advocate for in my political stance. The main thing is bearing witness to Christ. The main thing is worshiping God by what I do. And number three, if you're going to make a difference in the community, make your presentation of issues in a way that it shows how it builds and benefits our community. Dr. James Dobson used to say all the time, you're not going to get anywhere at a city council meeting or a township meeting by going in and quoting Bible verses. Help them to see the wisdom of God's Word by the life you live and help paint a picture for them of what happens when we deal justly, when we deal honestly. Everybody knows in this community that I'm a preacher of the gospel. I believe what I preach. I live to the best of my ability what I preach. But when I talk, and they ask me questions, I always try to build a picture of what happens when a life is truly changed. And then if they ask me what the Bible says about it, then I'm happy to have that conversation. The third thing is work always for reasonable compromise. And I don't know why that's become such a bad word. You know, I hate abortion. I hate it. But I know there's no way in this country at a state level you're going to ever be successful in what some states are trying to do, and that's outlaw all abortions. But if we can reach a, a compromise and then build from there rather than trying to get it all at one time. There are people who vociferously disagree with me on this. I led a study for this for the state of Michigan with some people who just got so angry at me when I said, we have to be, and I respect them. Don't, and I'm not throwing a rock. I respect them. They live every day of their life advocating. They want the whole thing. Compromise is a dirty word. But they are still where they were at years ago. There's only one of them that stays in touch with me. Very kind, very, we still disagree, but very kind and very respectful towards one another. So understand the art of a reasonable compromise. Darth, Darth, oh, I can't remember her name right now. She wrote the book um, about Lincoln and his enemies. 
Doris, Doris Kearns Goodwin is who I'm trying to think of. Lincoln was a master at this. Roosevelt kept a picture of Abraham Lincoln behind his desk. And when he was going through some of his most stressful times, he would turn around and he would look at Lincoln's picture. His cousin, Theodore Roosevelt, I mean Franklin Roosevelt, who was a Democrat, went often to the Lincoln Memorial and he wrote to a friend of his, it's time we Democrats claim the mantle of, of Abraham Lincoln. Ronald Reagan, John McCain, they both pointed to Lincoln constantly. And I watch presidents as they're always looking to Lincoln. But one of the things that Lincoln knew how to do that sometimes I think political leaders want to quote him, but they don't want to follow his example of trying to reach a compromise. I'm glad the South lost the war between the states. I'm a Southerner. But one of the things that I loved about President Lincoln is the night that Robert E. Lee surrendered, or the day Robert E. Lee surrendered to Grant. That night, after having been cursed, after having been burnt in effigy, after multiple attempts on his life, Abraham Lincoln instructed the presidential band, the White House band, to play the song Dixie. That was a pretty remarkable thing to do, to play the song of your enemies. And I think if we can learn from Jesus' example, and obviously Lincoln did, the world is not our enemy. The devil is our enemy. And we want to seek and bridge that gap between the city of the world or the city of man and the city of God, as Augustine said. And I think this was a marvelous way that Jesus introduced limited government. Jesus introduced what the kingdom was going to look like. And Jesus was successful, and the best is yet to come. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I love you. I thank you so much. I pray that you'll help us to internalize these truths, <clears throat> help us to articulate them, Lord, in our own voices as we enter into another campaign season God, I pray your blessings upon our country. I pray for revival like we've never seen or known before. And I thank you, Jesus, not only for your life and for your example, but I thank you for the wisdom of your teaching that helps us to be discerning men and women. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen, amen, and amen. God bless you. I hope to see you here Sunday morning at Woodland. Good night.